Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hi, I'm Jennifer Palmieri, and welcome to Just Something About Her from The Recount and iHeartRadio. On this podcast, I talk to powerful women about how they made it to the top on their own terms. Here to help me introduce this week's guest is my producer, Sari Soffer. Sari, you found this guest because of an article you read in Fortune. Is that right? Exactly. The article is called Why is Women's Health Still So Under-Researched? And it was written by Afton Vetri, the founder of Modern Fertility, which is a company that provides at-home fertility testing to people with ovaries to educate them about their reproductive health. Yes, this is a subject we've been wanting to delve into for a while because, no surprise, women's health, pain, and well-being is not taken as seriously as men's, and it's often neglected relative to the healthcare men receive. Right. So we often have worse health outcomes, especially women of color who face significantly worse outcomes when it comes to medical care, childbirth, and disease. There's a lot of reasons for these factors, but one really important one is that women are often left out of research trials for medical treatments and issues that affect people with ovaries are not prioritized. Yeah, I mean, the most recent example of this is the vaccines. Crazy. Most people have probably heard, at least anecdotally, that women have had worse symptoms from the shots. I sure did. Yeah, so did I. (laughs) And that was revealed, actually, in early trials, which did separate results by gender. But according to a New York Times article, they never took that second step to test if women could get lower doses of the vaccine, since our immune systems actually do have stronger reactions. They were just like, you know, women will suffer more. Sure, that's fine. (laughs) Sure, that's fine. Also, like, you could have saved some of the vaccines, right? You could have, like, used less. Totally, yeah. I also want to ask Afton how her company is working to demystify the most confounding and stigmatized area of women's health, fertility, because I think that will have ripple effects. Yeah, I mean, even amongst women, it's so tough to talk about these issues like having trouble conceiving, IVF. We barely even talk about our periods, and that's something we all go through. So getting rid of the taboo is definitely a priority. Oh, my God. Yes. Lots of good stuff to get into. Afton, thank you for joining. Thank you so much for having me. I am so excited to be here. So I want to start off with a theory that if men got periods, the pain and discomfort associated with menstruation would be figured out. And I think that's because A, women's pain just isn't taken as seriously as men's. And B, there's so much taboo surrounding women's health issues. We just don't touch it. It's so funny to look at, uh, did you follow when they were trying to invent male birth control uh, a few years back and the whole trial got shut down because there was yeah. a couple small side effects that were just, you know, a part yeah. of the the many side effects that women face on oral birth control pills. What is this? I mean, we live <laughs> in a society where I got diagnosed actually as part of starting modern fertility. I, I was trying to yeah. get these infertility tests and ended up getting diagnosed with, with PCOS as a part of the process. And, you know, I always thought that my irregular periods were just because I was super type A and, and stressed all of the time. And, and nobody had ever told me that not having a regular period is, is not normal. And it's something that you should talk to your doctor about. 
And I didn't realize the fact that if you have an ovulatory cycle, so if you don't get a period and you're not ovulating for you know a certain number of periods during a year, that can place you at a really high risk for endometrial cancer. Right. And no one had ever told me that before. And here you are working <laughs> so, in the field. Yeah. yeah. And I think that just this stigma that yeah. we have around women's health and reproductive health is harming people with ovaries. It shouldn't be this way. There's no reason that we shouldn't be talking about these factors at brunch. Like we would have normal conversations about- Right, like you were talking uh, about your migraines. Totally. Which are also, I'm sure, associated. Totally. They're, they're all tied. It's but all I tied. think that, yeah. you know, the, the normalization of these conversations to just get it out in the, the open yeah. has to happen for us to perpetuate information, to close this fertility information gap, to continue to allow all of this to move forward. One of the women in my family had, you know, really bad medical problems for like a year. And it took them a year to figure out that was endometriosis yeah. making her so ill. And one of your stats is that it takes an average of 10 years from the onset of symptoms to get an accurate diagnosis of endometriosis in the U.S. because of a general lack of knowledge. Which is crazy. There's also a really fun fact about endometriosis. Oh, Let's hear it. In 2012, researchers posted this super cool article. It's called Endometriosis, Ancient Disease, Ancient Treatments. What it outlines is how the present day experiences of endometriosis tied to this old time theory of hysteria, uh, which basically explained uh, that people with endometriosis often report doctors telling them that the pain is all in their heads. Technically, all pain that we experience is in our heads. Um, but in ancient Greece, hysteria, which was derived from the Greek word, hystera, meaning uterus, uh, referred to the idea that the uterus would actually wander from its spot in the body and lead to physical symptoms. And doctors back in the day believed the cause to be not having kids. And so through the, the next couple of centuries, hysteria evolved into the catch-all condition that marked all of these unexplained physical symptoms. But when people with uteruses who experience chronic pain aren't believed, it's really easy to connect the dots back to hysteria. And so just from the beginning of time, these kind of, you know, ancient taboos, words and topics all come together. So I think you got to learn about the past because there's a lot that we have to overcome because these stigmas and misconceptions are, are centuries old. You know, it's on one level horrifying, but then so illuminating and kind of makes everything make sense. You know, it's just, it's sort of validating to hear that. But I mean, hysteria, hysterectomy, yeah. it's all coming into clarity. Yes. So we're hoping in this conversation to, you know, start to get to the root of why medical testing, care, treatment just doesn't care about or understand women as much as it should. And something Sarah and I have been, you know, wanting to dig into for a while. And that's when she saw the article that you wrote in March for Fortune titled, Why is Women's Health Still So Under-Researched? And we were like, aha, we have found our guest. <laughs> um, but tell us, you know, I know that this is work you've been doing for a long time, but what inspired you to write that piece recently? That piece ties to where I spend almost all of my waking hours, which is on a, a company that I co-founded 
called Modern Fertility. Yeah. So just a bit of background there. We basically realized that the entire fertility and infertility space was very reactive as opposed to proactive. And so back in in 2017, we took the same exact laboratory tests out of an infertility clinic and made them accessible and available to women earlier in life at a fraction of the cost in this really easy to access format. And kind of use that opportunity to create this category of education upstream because times are changing. Women are waiting until (laughs) later in life to start our families. And yet our healthcare system, our education system is focused on preventing pregnancy as opposed to planning for it. Uh, Today, more women are having kids in their 30s than in their 20s. Women account for 80% of spending in the healthcare system Yet, you know, funding for women's health and and research is pretty abysmal. And I, I think that as we enter this new age of of society where these timelines and cultural pressures just continue to evolve and shift, yeah. we don't have the systems to support that. And so I think from my perspective, to truly understand why the inequalities are where they are today, it's very helpful to look into the past and understand how did we get to this place with research <laughs> such that we don't we don't have data and, and clinical trial data that actually you know supports the unique functions of women. So it seems like there's essentially two problems. One is that experiences that uniquely affect people who identify as women aren't studied. And then that medical research doesn't consider female assigned bodies. Correct. And certainly historically has not. Historically has not. I think reproductive health is a a window into broader health. And I think we can use some of the reproductive health markers to to think about all of these other conditions. But this Mm -hmm. gap in research is not just in reproductive health specifically. This gap exists everywhere. And we need to continue to focus on the unique experience and organs of women to just provide better care and outcomes. You know, my understanding is this is a a problem with heart disease because the symptoms manifest themselves differently in men than than they do in women. And the research on women is, you know, woefully low compared to men. Yes. So just to, to put all of this in perspective, the FDA excluded women of childbearing potential from all clinical trials from 1977 through 1993. This even extended into the lab into mice. That was my favorite little detail. Right? It's so fun. <laughs> Even mice. Yeah. yeah. And so there was some discussion at the time how men's bodies and women's bodies were, were largely the same. So this really wouldn't be an issue. But then there was also this kind of contradictory concern that clinical trials done wrong on women might harm their reproductive health. And so I think, you know, this is an honest and uh, worthy consideration of not wanting to harm a woman's reproductive health. Sure. And maybe it could have made sense as a short-term solution as we were trying to kind of, you know, up the the game of clinical trials and reporting standards. Yeah, and be more comfortable with them yeah. and that like that they were not doing damage to people's bodies, right? Correct. But that really short-term solution unfortunately turned into a long-term solution and it left us with a just insane gap in terms of what we know about women's bodies because they were not included as a part of the process. And so I think that that is really a core part, but that's not everything. (laughs) I would also look to just the state of academic research today. So many industries, academia and science is not an exception. Mm -hmm. Uh, They've just historically skewed very male. 
And so representation, I believe, fully matters in administrations, in (laughs) the boardroom, but also in research. And so I think that, you know, we're starting to see now more and more women get into the field of research, especially within reproductive health. Right. And we're starting to see these women's health issues take center stage, which I just think is so powerful. But the reality is today, we don't know nearly enough about reproductive health. Just want to share this stat from your website. In the last 20 years, there have been 5.5 times more studies about male infertility than female infertility. And in 2019 alone, there were nearly six times more studies about erectile dysfunction compared to studies exclusively about female infertility. Yep. And I think we are doing everything that we can to to change that. And so day one, we decided that we were going to put an IRB approved clinical trial essentially within our product experience. And so all of our customers own their own data, but they can consent to have their anonymized data used in peer reviewed research by modern fertility, PhDs and clinical scientists, but also as a part of academic collaborations with top academic centers across the US. And so we're working on building out actually better predictors of future fertility using our biomarkers, using self-reported clinical information. Mm -hmm. And so I, I think it's been amazing to me to see the majority of our customers say, yes, like I absolutely want to participate this could impact, you know, my timeline, my future family planning goals, but also that of my little sister, also that of my future daughter. And I think that this kind of force of a woman coming together and saying like, yeah, like let's change the game. It's those kind of incremental steps. And this is, you know, in, in one company with one part of the world, but if we start mm-hmm. to add those together, like this in my opinion, is how we start to change the game, how we make up for this just like gap in time where we weren't able to be a a part of the equation and just get, you know, better, more customized solutions for women. Okay, time to take a quick break. After the break, I want to talk a little more about how Afton and Modern Fertility are using data to destigmatize reproductive health and push for more equity in research. That's after the break with Afton Vetri on Just Something About Her. Welcome back to Just Something About Her with Afton Vetri, who started the at-home fertility testing company called Modern Fertility. What was the moment that caused you to start Modern Fertility? So my introduction to the infertility space was actually back in my my first job out of of school. Mm-hmm. I must have been 22 years old. I was actually living in New York City. And my job was to find sectors of healthcare that were interesting, growing, had some consolidation potential. And I was very personally passionate about women's health. And within women's health, I kind of stumbled on fertility and infertility. I actually got a chance to go into infertility clinics and talk to women and waiting rooms that told me, you know, no one ever told me that fertility would decline with age. No one ever told me that IVF wasn't this, you know, magic bullet and doesn't always work for every single person. And I kind of felt like at 22, I got this secret window into a world of conversations that my girlfriends, in New York were definitely not talking about and and wouldn't be for quite some time. And there was also something about the infertility space and just the way that it all worked that just didn't quite sit right with me. Yeah. It was happening too late. It was so expensive. It, it wasn't working all the time. It's very exclusive. Very exclusive. It's like only available to rich people, yeah. mostly white people. Yep. 
and I made the tough decision to leave finance. And I, I went to 23andMe uh, while they were still shut down by the FDA. And it was actually while I was at 23andMe that I realized, huh, like I'm waiting until later in life to start my own family. And I just remembered those baseline tests that I had learned about back in, in private equity. And I tried to get them done. So then my next OB visit, I said, hey, like I'd like to get this panel of tests. Can you please order it for me? And my OB said, no, you're not actively trying and failing to conceive. I'm not going to order them for you. And in California, you have to have your lab script to go do it. And so I made an appointment to go into an infertility clinic. And Mm -hmm. in San Francisco, it was uh, $700 out of pocket to get that initial consult, to get my piece of paper, to go to a lab core request and get a blood draw. But I had an irregular period. And so I was at this very flexible technology employer, but it still took me months to get it because I had to pinpoint day three of my cycle and when it was going to come and and schedule. And and that is not dealing with any of the accessibility issues that occur in, in most of the country. But the aha moment was really when I started just being open about my experience to my girlfriends. And I started talking to friends, friends of friends, and eventually quite literally hundreds of women that were saying like, oh my gosh, I've been thinking about this too. I think all of these signals and shifts, you know, Michelle Obama not talking about her IVF during her presidency, but talking about it in her book afterwards. Uh, Chrissy Teigen being open a lot just about her broader experiences. There was a normalization of these conversations that was enabling women to start to ask some of these questions. And I got diagnosed with PCOS along the way. There were like all of these extra things that was just like, oh my gosh. It's such a big part of women's life and has been just quartered off as, you know, like this black box. Yeah. Yeah. When I was starting Modern Fertility in, in 2017 and, you know, trying to fundraise and telling people that we were trying to start a fertility company for people that weren't trying to have kids right now, that the number of crazy blank stares that I got, the number of no's that I got. I bet. Of course. I mean, it's, it's hard to fundraise for any company, but especially this, where the people that you're pitching aren't necessarily users of your product. I mean, that is why we are in the place that we are in terms of, you know, broader venture funding and investment in female founded companies, especially that are focused on female issues. So what was your breakthrough? How were you able to convince someone finally that this would be a success that, you know, that this time was right for this kind of company? I kind of developed this obsession and I I think I probably had it for a lot of my life. I thrive on negative feedback because I want to understand (laughs) where it comes from and then I want to be better. And I think when I applied that to modern fertility, I was like, okay, so you don't think women will want this. Okay, why? Okay, because you don't have that emotion yourself. Okay, you're going to go home and ask your wife. Do I really want to engage with someone that after every board meeting is going to go home and ask their wife about this? Probably not. But like, help me understand like what that gap is. And so what I actually did is I, I paid out of my own savings in the early days for a lot of things, but <laughs> included in that was I did just a lot of market research. I surveyed women all across the U.S. from different socioeconomic levels, backgrounds about, you know, would they be interested in understanding their fertility proactively? How much would they be willing to pay for it? And so instead of, you know, one venture capitalist having to just hear my idea and vision for this future state of the world that I got super excited about, about women owning the decisions impacting their bodies and futures, whatever those decisions might be, I was able to say, and yep, here's what they say in in terms of that. And so through that process, I was able to build this data-driven story and narrative that showed that this is a category that we could create. I mean, this is like, I know there's like all sorts of social research on this that 
men are judged on their potential. They can walk in a room and like move everybody with their great idea. And women have to bring receipts. Women are judged on their record. And also I could see how bringing data and science and research to the topic of reproduction that people all through human history have been uncomfortable discussing, like demystifies it, normalizes it, makes it comfortable to talk about, which we need to do. Yeah. I think that obsession with data, I think that that obsession with having to to quantify success, to walk into a room and have to prove it. Mm -hmm. I mean, it kind of ties to the state of fertility and reproductive health in the, the world today. This is a sector that has a lot of stigma around it. This is a sector that you know, we we don't talk about fertility information in the same way that we talk about our beauty routines, but why not? And so if we start to bring data to the conversation, if we start to share interesting statistics, if we start to just, you know, pique the curiosity of men and women alike, I think that that can actually be used as an amazing tactic to change the game. Do I wish I could just walk into a room and everybody would believe every word I, I said? Yeah, but are we realistically at that point today? No, but I I think that the build and modern fertility's role in in building an industry and future mm-hmm. where that is more possible for you know my daughter, like that's where all of this is going. And I think that you know women love data, <laughs> and I think our our customers love data. Oh, interesting. We have a neon sign on the wall in our office that says "We trust women," and it's just trusting that they want this information and are equipped to handle it. It reminds me actually, you know, when the pregnancy test was first invented, the home pregnancy test was first invented, doctors didn't believe that women could handle finding out if they were pregnant from home. Interesting. Yeah. There does seem that there is this kind of patronizing approach that permeates a lot of medical research and treatment that wants to keep information out of the hands of patients. Yeah, I think when we take a step back and look at, you know, the broader societal constraints, having a baby in the U.S. is not a right. It's a privilege. We have no federal reimbursement Mm -hmm. across the U.S. that creates the care pathways that guarantees every person with ovaries will be able to have assistance in having a child if they need it. And so what that means is that the tests, the tools, the conversations, the, the care pathways that emerge often are are not in service of the goals that a, a person with ovaries might have. And the reason for that partially is because all of the research today in the reproductive health space has, has primarily been done out of infertility clinics. Mm-hmm. There are only about 500 infertility clinics and only about 2,000 reproductive endocrinologists. And so oh. realistically, when you think about the number of women that can even enter those doors, it's, oh. it's not a lot. Right. So you so your like research set is very is skewed, is not reflective of women as a whole. Exactly. And so we took a step mm. back and we were like, huh, well, if women are waiting until later in life to start their families, what is going to, to happen? We need to figure out ways where we can inform women with more predictive tools about their future so that they can continue to rise to new levels of authority in the, the workplace and, and just have more data to think about reproductive health and family planning as a part of this journey. You know, I think what's Powerful about what you're doing, particularly in the information age where, you know, we feel like we all want more information to be able to make our own decisions. Your company puts women in charge of their own health, but I know there's been criticisms that the tests don't actually correlate whether or not a woman can successfully conceive a child. 
And then people say, well, that can be just playing into women's anxieties, which is obviously not what you are, are encouraging people to do. So what's your response to those criticisms? Do you feel like it's based back in the, you know, what you're talking about when people thought that women couldn't handle finding out whether or not they were pregnant at home? Like, what is this about? Yeah, I mean, I think that these two are just so tied. I think when we look back on fertility hormone testing, you know, a, a decade from now, this will be in the same camp as pregnancy testing. And so when doctors said, no, we don't trust that em- women can emotionally handle finding out if they're pregnant from home, like that's ridiculous. And so we say the exact same thing around testing your fertility hormones. Your fertility hormones cannot tell you if you are going to have a baby or not. You only need you know one sperm and one egg to make that happen. So just like if you take a cholesterol test, it's not Mm going to tell you if you're going to get a heart attack tomorrow, but it's going to help you understand more about your body, help you understand more about next steps so that you can own that information. And and so it's always amazed me how in in women's health, we just have these, oh, it it has to do this or it's not helpful. That's not the way that the rest of, of healthcare works. As long as we continue to be responsible, yeah. uh, I, I do fundamentally believe that women can and, and should have the option to access whatever information they want about their right. bodies to then use it as data points and making their decisions. Right. And the question isn't whether or not modern fertility replaces a doctor's visit. It's whether we as a society take female fertility seriously and it's not taboo to talk about women's reproductive systems and that we trust patients, in this case women, with information. Yeah, even the word, I mean, there's a theory that the origin of the word taboo is mm-hmm. derived from a Polynesian word, taboo, which was once translated to the word menstruation. Oh. And, you know, I think that this comes full circle. I, I remember vividly, I was doing a prep for a TV spot last year, and I was told by a producer, just as a heads up, that I couldn't say the word vagina during <laughs> broadcast interviews, that it would get beeped. Like, I don't know what your policies are. No, 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 no. I'm just giggling about it. Yeah, we don't have any policies. Right? <laughs> it's just like, That's insane. We cannot say the word vagina on public television. Like what? It's an organ. Right. (laughs) And I think that, you know, when we, we think through the way that language even plays a role in all of this, like, oh my gosh, I just, I get so, so angry. I mean, language is the most powerful tool we have, you know, and it says a lot about what we value and like what we continue to be scared of and how we want to control people. Yeah. All right, time for a quick break to pay some bills. After, we're going to switch gears a bit and talk about some of the pressures of running a company with two women at the helm. That's next with Afton Vetchery on Just Something About Her. Welcome back to Just Something About Her with Afton Vetchery, founder of Modern Fertility. What do you see as the solutions to accelerate progress for women's medical research? More women in the field is that, I mean, you've pointed to representation as one. What else? Yeah, I mean, kind of continuing on the the representation point, Mm -hmm. I'm really excited about some of the wins that we've started to see in this space. And I think you can look at representation and academia and research. Oh, gosh, my kind of introduction to this whole world of kind of combining business and science was actually I went to I grew up in, in rural Maryland and went to public school there and, and I'll nerd out for two seconds. Yeah, no, in, in that part of the, the world, we were all on well water. So it was, you know, pits dug into the ground, no public water. You pumped your water into your house. Right. Through this random science fair project, I, I found a major issue with water quality in the community. And I ended up getting to go 
compete in the International Science and Engineering Fair, which was just this world-changing experience. I got to see a panel of 14, actually thinking back, they were all men, uh, 14 uh, Nobel laureates just talk about research and innovation and just got exposure into what science was capable of. Yeah. But then I also realized that if I kind of came back home and I, I didn't do anything with my science, it would stay in academia. And so I don't even think I knew what entrepreneurship or business was at the time, but I ended up starting a water quality testing company in my community. I got sponsored by a local research and development lab. I took all the kids that were in detention and I let them get community service credit for water testing Wednesdays where they would come into the lab and we literally found contaminated wells all over the community. But I think that that early experience for me really set me up to spend my life creating these, you know, broader solutions, you know, for women by me, a, a woman. And yeah. I, I recently got asked late last year to be on the board for Society of the Sciences that sponsors the International Science and Engineering Fair and to understand that now 50% of their scientists are women. Oh, that's amazing. And how would that compare when you were young? Oh, gosh, I don't even know if they collected stats at that point. I don't think that there were enough women at the time that had interest in, in going and doing this. But seeing mm -hmm. this conversation shift, seeing it, it be cool in some areas to, to do a science and science fair projects and innovate. I just I have so much excitement for this next generation of, of humans kind of coming up and, and making the world a, a better place through the lens of engaging with, with Society for Sciences. I think about it a lot because I do think that women and people of color, you know, need to be in at the founding of something yes. if you want a institution that you're building to thrive over the long time. But I, you know, obviously, you know, you can't rely on women to solve the world's problems or women alone to even solve women's problems, right? You know, you're like, well, maybe, maybe women alone. Do it. <laughs> <laughs> you know, the other thing I find is I feel like I've, I've, Interested in female CEOs, I feel like they get put under a lot of scrutiny. Yes. They are under a lot of pressure. The other thing I've sort of observed is we may put pressure on ourselves because there's an expectation that men create businesses to make money. And it seems that women can only create businesses to do something that does good in the world. <laughs> and that then there's a lot of pressure on women CEOs to be more than just a successful CEO that's having a successful business. But you have to be doing good in the world. All of your employees have to be super happy. And, you know, I've just seen a lot of women yeah. get held to you know, unrealistic standards, yeah, unrealistic yeah. standards, and they fail quickly and get drummed out in a way that their male counterparts definitely wouldn't. Like when you look even at this past year, like the the takedowns of women CEOs. Yeah. So, so Audrey Gelman at The Wing the CEO of Away, Luggage, Outdoor Voices. These were all women-led companies where the leadership got drummed out. I'm not defending everything that happened within each of these circumstances. I don't know all of the circumstances, but I do know that these women were all held to standards that men are not. But how are you, how are you managing with all of this? Because I'm glad to see you succeed because I think this is very hard. <laughs> Yeah. I mean, it was, it was awful and terrifying and sad. I, I don't know the right, you know, words to describe it to, to, yeah, see women again. I, I don't have the full stories of, of any of those situations, right. but what I unequivocally know is that women in those situations were held to a very different and higher standard than what their male counterparts would have. 
And, you know, I, I think a lot of this, you know, comes from the employees and a lot of those companies, you know, there are a lot of employees that, you know, want to go to maybe a mission driven company or maybe a female founded company because they're looking to get a different leadership. And so their expectations on, on day one are, are quite high. And maybe my gender can fill a part of those expectations. But at the end of the day, like, you know, my job, my fiduciary responsibilities to the company, to all of our, you know, investors or, or stakeholders, like there is so much to do and take on. And I know, you know, for me personally, I try to be better every day in doing that, but there's no way to do it perfectly or, you know, effectively in, in all manners. And so I really do think that that, you know, double standard exists. And then I also think that just there is a trend in lots of cultures where making money can be seen as bad, which is, it's, it's kind of confusing because, you know, I think especially in a mission-driven environment, if you're able to make money, you're able to invest in more products, tools, and services to create better right. solutions that will impact the world. It needs to be profitable in order to be sustainable. Yeah. And I, I think, you know, that is my my view on a lot of business. That's my view on, personal view on a lot of philanthropic organizations, I think that some cannot exist in that model, but others can. Like, how can we make more of these self-sustaining so it doesn't require this, you know, constant base? And I just think that um, we're in a world where I think most leaders, especially female leaders, are held to a very unattainable standard in, in many cases. And yeah, I think it is, it's hard. I think a lot of times just, you know, people in our jobs in modern day culture and society. And I think we are looking to our workplace to check so many boxes in our lives. Mm -hmm. Like we're, we're moving to different cities. We're looking to our workplaces to solve all of our needs in life. And there are right. tech companies that literally do all of that for you. And it's confusing, right? And that's not every company. And that's not every person that has those expectations and or realizes that they might have those expectations. But I, I think that in the context of this like broader cultural evolution where we're looking to our workplace to be so much for us. I think that there are a lot of pros and, and cons of that shift that, again, like reproductive health, I don't think that we've had the time to take a step back and say, how should we navigate and support you know, the, the system, but also ourselves in this process. Thank you for all the time and good luck. Thank you. This was This was so fun. Sarah, are you there? Yeah, I loved all the history lessons in this one. Oh my God, particularly like how useful this is in mm -hmm. just giving us perspective about like the craziness we've been living under, right? The whole hysteria thing. Oh my God, the hysteria thing was so interesting. Also, I didn't know that like women weren't trusted at first to have at-home pregnancy tests, like had no idea about that. Or that taboo came from taboo, which meant <laughs> menstruation. Like there's so much wrapped up in the hysteria thing. First of all, there's like, Women's pain is dismissed, but not only is women's pain mm -hmm. dismissed, we're thought of as being sort of like defectual in some way, right. right? That like we're somehow built to do that, to mislead, to cause trouble, to be mm -hmm. a problem. Like this is such a big deal. And we just go through our lives day to day and don't appreciate like all of these biases and things that we've inherited and still living under that you know, just affect women at our very core. It is like, I am mind blown. <laughs> <laughs>
Like, yeah, just... and you know what? You just made me think. So what's so wild about the hysteria story is that they were saying that the cause of hysteria was a wandering uterus. And that happens when one does not have children. So the answer to all of this is have children. That's what you're meant to do. That's what you're put on earth to do. It it reminded me too, I thought about this with the FDA ban. The way that it was written was saying that the reason that they left women out of the research was that women are essentially the same as men, except for our reproductive system. (laughs) And like, I mean, I personally don't believe that to be true. I think there's a lot of differences, but it does emphasize that women are only seen as reproductive vehicles and that everything else that affects our well-being or everything else that makes us up doesn't matter. It's just, wow. Well, it's also women. We also inherit these biases as well. Of Um, course, from what I've experienced and what I've heard from women in my life, like a lot of us downplay our own pain because we've been gaslit to think that it's not real. And same thing with like the taboo. I mean, I feel like messaging I've got from like my mother and other people in the generation, my grandmother, it's like, we don't talk about periods. That's something that we don't talk about. And it's like, we also have inherited some of these cultural stigmas. A lot of shame. Yeah. So I think to Afton's point, if we start talking about it more, more of us will realize we're not alone. More of us will talk about the pain associated with periods and maybe realize that endometriosis is more widespread than we thought. And using data will help us encourage more research and testing on that stuff. I think data is a great vehicle for sort of like an unraveling Mm -hmm. shame and tabooness because it's objective, right? It's like numbers. It's a great way to demystify, but then also I think normalize Mm -hmm. talking about this stuff. It's really important. Yeah. So is representation, which Apton also mentions. Mm -hmm. In that article she wrote, she pointed out that the reversal of the FDA policy in 1993 came largely because of the influence of the Congressional Caucus for Women's Issues. And then she also mentioned that, you know, Kamala Harris introduced a bill in August 2020 to expand uterine fibroid research. So it's like getting people in those positions of power that think about these issues. Like I said, I remember the 93 FDA policy because I was working for President Clinton and it was the Women's Caucus that, you know, made it an issue. And even, you know, even 30, almost 30 years ago, I was like blown away. I was like, wait, what? Like, even then it was crazy to me that we were not, yeah. that they had not done medical research. Yeah. Yeah. Obviously we want to mention progress where it happens. Yay. So in NIH clinical trials, women make up half the participants and in FDA clinical trials, 72% now. So they report on sex and gender differences, but they still don't include race in that. So yep. out of those, you know, 72% of women included in FDA trials, we don't know how many of them are black women. Yeah, it is a monster issue. The race disparities reveal themselves in just about every sector, right? Yeah. All right, great idea. Glad you read that article. <laughs> This is Just Something About Her, a podcast from The Recount and iHeartRadio. Thank you to Afton Vetchery for being on the show. If you like this episode, please subscribe to the podcast and leave a rating in the Apple Podcast app. I'm your host, Jennifer Palmieri. D. Scott Carroll engineered this podcast. Jessica Williams handles research. Stephanie Stender is our post producer. Sari Soffer is our producer. And Christian Castro Russell is our executive producer. 